Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to have our friend Dick Foth back with another session of Back Channel with Foth. And then we're going to jump into our conversation with Dr. Richards on misreading scripture with Western eyes. Dick, so excited to have you back on the podcast with us. Joy is always mine. It helps me think clearly early in the morning, theoretically, at the very least. <laughs> good deal. Good deal. Two questions for you today, Dick. Uh, first one is, living overseas has challenged some of my thoughts and spiritual convictions. How have you remained spiritually resilient when you see your convictions changing? I, I think I might... I think I might might need a bit more context to help much, uh, but I'll give this a try. Sometimes in our spiritual journeys or trajectories, um, we have opinions or stances that have been either given to us or appropriated or borrowed or or adopted. Uh, it isn't really born from God's spirit touching my spirit saying this is true more tradition than truth it's not terrible yeah. but it's yeah. and often those come from people we love so we check them and in our minds we marry those if yeah. we change our minds about that particular thing i'm disowning my parent or I'm hmm. whatever but oftentimes it's it's the method that gets us more than the message we are changing our methodologies not necessarily the truth of the message well generationally methods will and do change. And yeah. I mean, our, our children, grandchildren, great-grand, you know, if I want to fix my TV remote, I ask the six-year-old to do it. <laughs> I, what, what's that about? It used to be you could just turn the knob, right? Yeah. Or, or, or move the antenna, I'll probably just say. So, um, but, but oftentimes, and methods change because culture demands a different way of hearing the good news. Hmm. They don't know that they're demanding that. But for me, uh, Jesus at the, at the center, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this little illustration. Okay. And again, uh, message and method oftentimes are linked in this way. How you do what you do, no matter what your words are, hmm. is the message. Marshall McLuhan back in the early 60s, he's Canadian, wrote an article called The Medium is the Message. Hmm. And so, for example, here I am raised in a revivalistic church, and, and there were certain key theological points that I heard every week growing up, pretty much every week. Jesus and the Holy Spirit were at the center, and, and, um, and so I should be spirit-motivated. And then, not necessarily in this sequence, but close. Great Commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all people. The rapture of the church, the second coming of Christ, the second advent, which could happen next Tuesday in our theological structure. So, yeah. bam, you need to be ready. And then what I will call Wesleyan holiness, which is you are defined by the things often that you don't do as opposed to the things that you do. Yeah. And so the question, when you have that uh, constellation or that construct, okay, Jesus at the center, we need to tell people about him. We need to get after it because he, he's coming back. And but uh, Wesleyan holiness is come apart and be separate. Don't mm. identify with those people. So how do the people hear when you when you have that construct? Well, you stand across the street and you holler at them. Mm. You shout at them, right? But when I read <laughs> Jesus, when I read Jesus in the in the scriptures, 
That's not what he did. He got in trouble for eating with the wrong guys, right? And so I, ha I adjusted over time what I understood to be my theology. Hmm. I, I, I adjusted it to what I uh, found as I really worked with people to be a more accurate way rather than staying within my theological systems that I had been given or yeah. born into. Uh, and it isn't that I don't believe that Jesus is coming back. It isn't that I don't believe that we should not, not be holy. Right. Uh, but how I define that yeah. has shifted. So I think spiritual resilience, which is where the question came, how yeah. do you stay spiritually resilient, is, is rooted in two questions for me. Okay. What is the kingdom? Because that's Jesus' message. And why did Jesus or the apostles say or do that? I mean, you read Jesus, you read almost any of the letters, and something is said, you say, my classic question is the two-year-old question that all two-year-olds ask. Why? <laughs> you know, now I'm old and deaf, I say, what? But, but then, you know, so I, I, would, I would encourage you to approach scriptures with the question of a two- or three-year-old. You read something and you say, why? And, and dig in and find out the answers or ask the Spirit to help you and the, all your exegetical tools, whatever they are. And, and never stop exploring those two ideas. Hmm. And it's natural to reassess our lives. So if we're saying, why do I believe this? Or why do I act this way or have this approach? We need to do that. Yeah. Our friend Admiral Clark had on several times across the country, uh, had, didn't seem to be as motivated as he once was. And his question was, how long has he been there, wherever there is? Yeah. And I told him the number of years. And he said, well, that explains a lot of it, probably, because often after 25 years, we stop challenging our assumptions. Hmm. And I think part of my life in Christ is to always challenge yeah. my assumptions not in terms of uprooting the plant that's trying to grow. So challenging our understanding of God and, and his purposes, that's a bigger deal. I'm not yeah. talking about loss of faith. So, but I think it's just like sports or houses. In yeah. sports, when a team's not working well, they say that, that defensive line in football needs to get back to the fundamentals. Yeah. Or in a, in a strong house, they say this house has good bones. Yeah. Go back and revisit first things. Hmm. Who is this God? Why did Jesus build from there? And, That's uh, good. Yes. Good word. Anyway. Good word. Dick, the second question, kind of that, I don't know if you have more to add to it, but is, is changing of convictions, is this a natural progression of our faith? You know, I think I, I accidentally, on my notes here, answered both questions at the same time. I, I, thought, think, you, I thought you did, but I didn't want, I didn't want you to, to uh, give, not give you the opportunity. Well, I... I, I just think the, the, the people that I know who, who I consider vital believers, that, that is, they're, they're always coming, asking me the hard question and coming after this and that and the other thing. These are people who I don't, I don't see it as much of a changing of faith as much as I see it as a distilling. Hmm. Of that, That's good. That I've had this concept, the way it's expressed may not, it, it the way it's expressed divides us, either by groups or by personality, but it isn't at its core wrong. So I say go back to first things yeah. and 
You don't have to rebuild the whole house, but you need to understand what things, uh, what things are things to be really held onto yeah. and stood fast on, sent fast on, and what, what, what stuff that's on the edges that doesn't good. count. Good, good word, Dick. Always appreciate spending time with you. I'm going to go ahead and jump into our interview with Doctor Richards on misreading scripture with Western eyes. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to have a new friend of the podcast, Doctor Randy Richards. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for inviting me, Aaron. I'm honored. It, Randy, it is exciting. Um, I had read your book several years ago, then rereading it and rereading it again, and um, just have been praying about this interview and really excited about it. So would you go ahead and maybe just share a little bit about yourself before we jump into some of the questions on misreading scripture through Western eyes? All right, sure. Uh, my name is Randy. Uh, I am married to Stacia, coming up on 42 years. We have two wonderful sons, and now, more importantly, three wonderful grandsons. Uh, when uh, I had finished a PhD on Paul, and then Stacia and I uh, packed up a two-year-old and an eight-week-old, and we uh, took a long flight to Indonesia. Uh, we eventually were assigned in eastern Indonesia to um, what many would consider a rather remote uh, location, is rural. Sure. And I was involved in both church development and in teaching at the seminary there. I learned a lot there, by the way. I'm sure. And your PhD studies, doctoral studies in Paul, what, what's the genesis of that story? Well, I was uh, actually not interested in Paul when I first uh, studying. I found him hard and difficult and all that. And then I had a wonderful professor kind of introduce me to him Um I actually wrote on technical aspects. Uh, I'm writing a book right now on papyri and inscriptions. So I, wow. I will do some very uh, technical things. I'm also writing a, the word biblical commentary on John. And wow. so uh, I have a lot of interest. I'm kind of a jack of all trades and a master of none. Wow. wow. Well, um, we're looking forward to learning from you um, today. So just one of the what just want to jump in. One of the first uh questions, a phrase that you use in the book, um, I you started highlighting and underlined it myself, is what went without saying. Could you explain what this phrase means and how it relates to reading the Bible and living cross-culturally? Sure, Aaron. Let me back up and say there are two phrases I use a lot, and I use them uh, even more so in the sequel to the book that we're discussing today. But one is that generalizations are always wrong and hmm. usually helpful. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and it's an important thing. It's easy to start quibbling over how this generalization or that generalization has exceptions. Yeah, but in general, generalizations can be helpful. Uh, and the other thing is what goes without being said in a culture are usually the most important things. Um, and they're just so uh, drilled into who we are. They go without being said because they don't need to be said. So, for instance, in an American culture, it would be things like um, youth, uh, how we value youth. So on a TV show, we don't think anything at all 
that the chief of surgery is 38 years old and clearly spends most of his time in a gym. Hmm. Um, but in reality, the chief of surgery is 65 years old and has never seen a gym. Um, <laughs> but we, to us, youth is just absolutely essential. Efficiency is what we call a primary virtue. In other words, I can say as an American, well, if we do it this way, it's more efficient. And I quickly discovered in Indonesia, efficiency is a neutral value. Um, it's like saying we could paint it green. They think, mm -hmm. well, yeah, we could paint it green. You know, we could paint it blue, too. So I would think I was concluding something by saying, and therefore, you know, it's more efficient this way. And they thought I just mentioned a irrelevant fact. Wow. So efficiency is just built into us. We don't have to argue about it or to do it differently. The Cinderella story is a meta narrative in American culture. When you ask somebody how they met their uh, husband, the wife will tell the story and it's going to end up sounding a lot like the Cinderella story. You know, she was pursued. You know, women, I, I tell these poor college guys, you know, uh, women all want to be pursued uh, by the right guy. Everybody else is the creepy stalker. So they're trying to always figure out, am I the creepy stalker or am I the guy that wants to be pursued? Or a different one is the story, the little red hen that that goes without being said in our culture. So um, it's a primary virtue. So these things are uh, the technical term is a narrative substructure. They're, they just they're essential. They influence decision making, but they never are outwardly said. And that, how does that impact how we read scripture? Well, those own cultures had their own narrative substructures. Mm. It went without being said. So often a biblical story will begin by saying something significant that we're supposed to pick up on and how that is not like the way it normally is. For instance, in the story of Joseph with the coat of many colors, that story, the first thing we hear about Joseph is that he ratted on his brothers. Well, we think, well, boys will be boys, but we're supposed to pick up on that as, oh, this is not the way things normally are. Or in the story about David and Bathsheba, which I think we're going to talk about later, it starts out by a shaming statement. In the time when kings go out to war, David doesn't. Hmm. Um, he stays home. So we're supposed to have picked up on all of that stuff. And we often just gloss uh, right over it. Yeah. Yeah. And since you, you went ahead and talked about that, about David and Bathsheba, can we can we jump to that? You, you share that um, there's differences between honor, shame, culture and guilt, innocent culture and we, how we interpret that story. Could you just share? Sure. Well, that story requires for us to misinterpret it like we often do. Um, it requires us to assume certain things about the story from our own culture that's not part of the biblical world. For instance, privacy. Many of our uh, listeners live in cultures where there's not such a thing as privacy. You know, in Indonesia, there isn't even a word for it um, because it certainly doesn't exist. I would get up at five in the morning and uh, come into my living room and there would be a family there waiting on me um, because they had something they wanted to talk to me about. Privacy just doesn't exist. And so we uh, we assume certain things about privacy, that David's alone when he asks these questions, that other people don't know these things are happening. We also assume things about bathing. The ancient world did not bathe for cleanliness purposes. Soap hadn't been invented yet. Um, it would be a ritual bathing that she's doing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we also would assume, <laughs> stupidly, that um, she would not have realized, oh, gee, right up there is the balcony to the king. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the king comes out at certain times of the day. Um, my friend, I have a friend who works in the White House, and she said, everybody in the White House knows exactly how many feet their office is from the Oval Office. And they know what times of day the president walks down which hallways. So nobody accidentally bumps into the president. Hmm. Hmm. We also don't pick up. We call her Bathsheba. That's not her name. Uh, It means daughter of Sheba. So we're never told her name. She's called Mrs. Uriah throughout the story. Because this is actually the story of David and Uriah, one acting honorably and the other one not. And and then the thing we were supposed to pick up on is the story is shaming David throughout it because he's not doing what he ought to be doing. Instead, he's acting like a normal uh, Middle Eastern king Hmm. who has absolute power to do whatever he wants. Wow. Wow. It is. It's amazing. It is amazing. So you've eloquently shared how our lenses can and shape these stories that, you know, I've heard from Sunday school all the way up through, um, but just an interpretation from my cultural perspective, for sure. Well, and uh, let me say, Aaron, if for some reason this woman actually is being exploited by a power structure, it is a terrible, terrible thing. And we do know that women in the world are exploited through power structures. And it's a horrible crime. But the story does not describe her as a woman exploited by power structures. Um, Even later in stories, when she's the queen and she's negotiating to get her son picked as heir versus the other one, uh, we see a, a crafty woman who knows how to use the structure, power structures that are around her. And the idea that Uriah would have no idea what's going on. Uh, soldiers are fed by food shipped from home. So he would have regular, if not we- not biweekly, at least weekly shipments of servants bringing him food. And uh, uh, they would bring him news of what's going on uh, back home. And when mm-hmm. he's summoned by the king, he's going to want to know why he's summoned by the king. Uh, because if it's for a bad reason, he's going to take off the other way. He's not going to make that appointment. So mm-hmm. he clearly knows in the story why he's summoned. You know, the fact that he doesn't go home, but stays, spends the night in a very public place where all the soldiers will know he didn't go home. I mean, it's just very clear. It's a shaming story all the way through. Wow. Wow. Very, very insightful. Very insightful. Another question for you. Your book talks about how biblical authors um, viewed time differently than Western cultures. How do you use this information to talk to those who believe the Bible was inaccurate due to timing or sequence discrepancies? Oh, well, that's a, a great point. You know, uh, Luke says at the beginning of his gospel, he's going to write an orderly account. Well, we assume that means chronological because for us, orderly is chronological. Um, and we don't particularly notice that every story in the gospels, Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem. Um, every incident is in a town closer. Um, halfway through the gospel, Luke says, Jesus sat his face, sat his face toward uh, Jerusalem. And Jesus has this motif in the gospel of Luke that he's making a journey to Jerusalem. So he says, come along and follow me. Well, where is he going? To Jerusalem. To what? To die. 
As mm-hmm. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the call of Jesus never changes. He bids us come and die. So every story is geographically and culturally closer to Jerusalem. And the number of followers of Jesus gets smaller every time until finally all you have is Jesus alone on the cross. And then in the book of Acts, every story is uh, further from Jerusalem, geographically, Hmm. ethnically, culturally. So we would say that, to use Western terms, uh, Luke has a centripetal theme and Acts has a centrifugal theme. Well, we know from John, Jesus visits Jerusalem at least four times. But in Luke, only once. So he tells an orderly account, but not the way we would think orderly. For us, that automatically means um, uh, chronological. So we critique Acts for saying, well, the death of Herod is out of sequence chronologically in the story of Acts. Therefore, it is inaccurate. Well, Luke knows perfectly well when Herod died. I mean, you keep up with that sort of stuff. He wants to tie an example with Peter and with Herod. Both of them are talking about a king who provides for his people. One is King Herod. The other is King Jesus. Wow. Wow. Very, very Now, let me say something about time while we're at it. You know, Angel World had no watches, and a lot of your folks uh, may not either. So when I went to (laughs) Indonesia, they— they have a time, uh, they have a term, uh, you say good morning, good midday, good uh, afternoon, good evening, that sort of thing. So as a Westerner, I want to know, okay, well, when does midday start? And my language coaches said 1030. I thought, okay. So um, I'm at doing something and I say good morning to them one time. They said, no, no, it's, it's, it's midday. Siang, it's midday. And I said, I looked at my watch and, you know, it's 1015. I said, no, no, it's, it's uh, still morning. They said, no, no, it's Siang. And it took me a while to finally figure out morning is when it's cool. Siang, midday, is when it starts getting hot. Hmm. And afternoon is when the heat breaks and it starts to cool off. Hmm. So, but I wanted to convert it to a time of day. So I'm trying to operate off of a watch or from a view of time. But um, for our listeners, Aaron, I would say that our they've experienced some cultural shifting themselves. My parents tended to break the day up into one-hour increments. And my generation tends to break it up into half-hour increments. So for them, church started at 11 a.m. Yeah. But for us, we could start church at 1030, which my folks think, well, that's crazy. How can you start at a half hour? My kids (laughs) break the day up into 15-minute increments. Hmm. And so they can start church at, at 945 or 1015. Um, So I would say to your folks living uh, in other cultures, when would a villager say church starts? See, my Indonesian friends would say church starts at Siang, midday. Hmm. So once it starts to get hot, they mosey on down toward church. Um, But they'll have a sign on front of the church that has a a time on it. It'll say (laughs) 10 10 o'clock or whatever, 1030. But everybody there knows it actually starts at Siang. Yeah. Um, So uh, let me add one more comment about time. Sure. It's not it's not part of Christian discipleship to teach someone to be punctual, meaning punctual by Western standards. Um, So we need to quit getting irritated over that. Um, Jesus would have driven us crazy because I suspect he would have been late to everything by Western standards. Mm. Um, Indonesians tell me, you know, church starts at the right time. And I said, well, that would be 1030. They said, no, it's the right time when everybody's here or the right number of people are there. Hmm. 
So why do you, what are some reasons you think we focus so much on that as Westerners reading scripture? And then as we plant the church, what are some reasons you found that we focus so much on that time? Um, or our culture our is, is time sensitive. There is an old debate. It's called the Warfian hypothesis that our language helps determine part of our worldview. So we have, I think technically in English, eight tenses to our language. Hmm. Um, Indonesia has no tense, verb tense at all. And hmm. when I first got there, I thought, well, how can you even function without a verb tense? Well, I found sure. out they do just they do just fine. <laughs> um, so I would say it's time is built into our worldview, and many uh, language philosophers would say it's it comes from our language. Whatever it is. Our worldview as English speakers, it's very, very time conscious. Hmm. I think for me personally, this is obviously not a podcast about me, but 20, you know, 22 years overseas, 20, between 20, and 22 years. I think it's probably internally, it's more of a control thing, you know, and, hmm. and that idea that I feel like I have some control if things start on time and um, learning to do that and then felt out of control when it didn't and uh, trying to make everybody right. fit into my fit into my mold, which, as you said, but Aaron, I'm, I'm going to push back on you. I would say yep. that's true. But why do we think time is something that we control? Mm-hmm. So we started that way first. I do think it irritates us correctly because we feel like we've lost control, but we don't feel like we've lost control over other things. You know, we, we show up at a place to eat and we eat whatever is, in front of us, you know, the old missionary slogan, wherever he leads, I will follow, whatever I'm served, I will swallow. And so we will just eat whatever. We don't feel like we've lost control over that. But time we do. It's interesting to me, Indonesians run trains on time. So anything that needs to run on time, they run on time. Wow. But my list of things that need to run on time is a lot longer than their (laughs) list of things that need to run on time. Oh, man, for sure. Great, 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 great truths. Great truths. What do you think, as you were writing the book and as you've read the book, what what is, do you think is the hardest chapter for Westerners to grasp and understand? Um, well, uh, I don't know. I think the one that people find really interesting is rules versus relationships. Hmm. We tend to think everything is run by rules. Um. And most of the world, and certainly the biblical world, but most of the world tends to think things are done by relationships. So the head of immigration in Indonesia, his job is to make the exceptions. We would say the job of the head of the office is to enforce the rules. Hmm. But he would say, no, no, I've got people to do that. His job is to make all the exceptions. But here's what's fascinating. We tend to think, Rules have to apply to everybody or they're not fair. And rules have to apply all the time or they're broken. And since we know God is not unfair and that God is not broken, then we read everything he says in scripture as if it is a rule by those standards. So Hmm. the Israelites come out of Egypt and they enter the promised land. And God tells Joshua, okay, um, no Canaanite will get land. And all Israelites get land. All right. Then the first story is a Canaanite who gets land. Hmm. 
Um, and then the second story is an Israelite who doesn't get land. And, and we're supposed to, like, notice that. <laughs> so we're, we're deeply troubled by things like uh, God says, kill all the Canaanites. We think, oh, how could he do that? Well, we find Canaanites everywhere all the time. So clearly they didn't. Or, you know, Pharaoh said, throw all the uh, male children into the river. Well, uh, Moses doesn't lead a group of women out of Egypt. Um, Great point. I mean, there Great are men point. everywhere. Um, but for us, then, oh, they didn't follow the rules. Um, so uh, Paul says, I was chosen in my mother's womb. We think, well, if Paul was, then all of us were. Well, Paul's point was, I'm not like everybody else. Hmm. Um, Paul says, you know, um, I won't allow a woman to teach. And then we find examples all the time where he does. Where I learned this story, Aaron was this great thing. I was invited to speak at this Indonesian pastor's conference. And uh, they said, okay, this time we can't invite families because we don't have enough room so just pastors are going to come. I said, okay. So I read up on the rules. And that convention, their rules say pastors must be male. Now, we're not going to get into that debate, but it's their <laughs> convention, their convention, their rules. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I get up to speak, and I, I'm sitting on the front row with the head of the convention. It's my turn to get up and speak. I get up and I speak, and there's, I don't know, about 100 people in the room. And there's, I don't know, maybe a dozen women. So I, I speak, you know, and I sit back down next to uh, Yoti, just a wonderful Christian fellow. And uh, so we're kind of chatting. And I said, Yoti, so um, are there only pastors here? He said, yep, only pastors were invited. I said, so everyone in the room is a pastor? He said, yeah. And they're all <laughs> called pastor? He said, yeah. So I should have left it alone. You know, I'm an American. <laughs> I can't leave it alone. So I said, but Yoti... Your, your rules say pastors must be male. And I hope I never forget this. He said, yeah, and most of them are. Wow. That, I, I ponder that for years hmm. because that's a fundamentally different view of rules. Hmm. For us, if the rule says pastors must be male and yet you have them, we would have to change the rule yeah. to say most pastors. And then we'd sure. argue over what percentage. <laughs> um, and for them, it was fine to say pastors must be male, except when they aren't. Yeah. So Paul says I, a, a woman is not allowed to speak publicly in church. And then he has rules for what they should do when they do speak publicly. Hmm. You know, they have to have their head covered. We sure. say, wait a minute. Why would you have to have a rule like that since there aren't any? Yeah. Um, so I think if we had Paul in the room and we said, Paul, would you allow a woman to teach? He'd say, no. We'd say, well, what about Phoebe? Oh, yeah, sure, Phoebe. <laughs> um, it's a different view of rules. So I think uh, God may be more like them than me. Wow. And so um, it's so interesting to me. Aaron, that people who talk the most about the sovereignty of God are always telling me what God can't do. Hmm. And I think um, God is more like that head of immigration in Indonesia. Hmm. He, his role is to make the exceptions. Wow. Wow. And yet 
I have lots of friends who say God can't make any exceptions. I said, I thought God can do anything. Um, in fact, that's my definition of sovereignty is you get to do whatever you want. Wow. Yeah, that's challenging. I just want to pause for 30 seconds in the middle of this episode to share some exciting news about the book I published, A Caring Life, How Each of Us Can Change the Trajectory of an Uncaring World. It's available now on Amazon and audiobook, Kindle, and print form. And the book helps us recognize that our world is moving in a direction of an uncaring life and helps us reorient towards a caring life where those that are in our life feel valued, they feel known, they know that they belong, and they matter. The book, as I said, is, is a valuable resource and I believe will help change the trajectory of an uncaring world. It's available now on Amazon. And so how does that how does that impact, you know, the America, the United States, it's obviously changing. And we have there's more people coming in from different cultural aspects. Oh, yeah. So how does how does the American church, how do they grapple with this? Because you, we could have said maybe 150 years ago, this this only applies to missionaries or people working overseas. Right. But the reality right. of it is the churches that I visit in the United States and and as we home one itineration, they're very there's a lot of multicultural people in the in, in the fact the church is booming in the US. You know, people you hear all this, the news will say the church is in decline. Well, among White Euro European Americans, sure. it is. Um, you know, you'll hear, oh, the church is dying in Europe. Well, the church is exploding in Europe, just not among white Europeans. And so um, it will become more and more true. Um, it's becoming more multicultural. Our challenge, this mistreating scripture through individualist eyes, really, when we talk about Eastern Western, we're really talking about individualists, Westerners. And collectivists, Easterners, hmm. and um, and it it uh, there there was this wonderful European uh, sociologist years ago who did a survey of I can't remember how many hundred cultures or so, and he ranked them on a sliding scale from the most collectivist to the most individualist. So that it isn't like you're either collectivist or you're individualist. It's a sliding scale. But what was fascinating was um, you, you have this wonderful sliding scale, but you have two cultures that are so individualist. They're so far out to the far right that it makes everyone else be from the middle over to collectivist. So it skews the whole so you have a wonderful sliding scale, except for these two cultures. But those two cultures are the UK and the US. Seriously. So that is not only are we individualists, but we are so far out that we're just off the scale individualists. And that's fine. It's perfectly fine. Every culture has these lenses that we pick up that affect how we read scripture. But like our glasses, in some ways, they help us to focus better. So we see certain things better because of our cultural lens. But hmm. we, it also will tend to distort things, and we don't see other things. And that's hmm. true for any culture. My book is not a blasting the West. We do a lot of things well. but um, And someone should write a book, Misreading Scripture Through Eastern Eyes. I just can't be the one to, to write it. So yeah. all cultures, we all have lenses. And so what are some things that the American church, we have a more 
individualistic bent. Are there some parts of scripture that we we grasp maybe quicker than somebody that has a collective view of a worldview? Yeah, absolutely. There are some things we do really well. Um, this idea of personal responsibility, scripture does teach that. And so um, it does matter what I do. Um, mm. And it does matter how I respond to scripture. So now we we can distort that by making it all about me. Sure. But there is a me element to it. But there's other things we also do really well. Um, uh, Americans are very forgiving. Um, we, we really, I think, get it right. Jesus's teachings about forgiveness. And uh, um, I remember a, a wonderful friend of mine from Japan who said, really, I mean, really, Americans aren't still mad over Pearl Harbor. I said, no, really mm. not. He said, that's amazing. And then he mm. said, I, I would not assume it goes the other way. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I said. Wow. Um, but we, we get forgiveness. Well. We get generosity well. Um, American Christians are extremely generous. Mm. Um, so, I mean, there are things we get well. We, yeah. we do well. Yeah. Wow. You share a story um, about an Indonesian tsunami, and you share how the president of Indonesia felt compelled to verbally tell foreigners to leave to save face. But he had no intention of actually kicking anyone out of the country because the tsunami aid was very much needed. In your story, the Western countries totally misinterpreted his statement and made things much worse. Many of us work in countries where indirect communication is commonplace. Um, how can we grow in this understanding of indirect communication um, in the countries we live in. Right. Um, you know, saving faces, meaning preserving honor. You're preserving your own honor. You're preserving your group's honor. So he was trying to protect his country's honor because there were people who are saying, we don't want these foreigners there. And so the way he was protecting the country, I was, okay, well, we're going to tell them to leave, you know. She just wasn't going to get around to it any time soon. <laughs> and they kind of understood that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, just like countries like China will say um, Christians are not allowed to come, you know, and come and do mission work. Well, they're not stupid. OK. I mean, they have figured out why thousands of American college students get on a plane every summer. And sure. show up all with matching T-shirts. Okay, so you know they, you know, I lived in a country where uh, Indonesian missionaries were not allowed. Well, that was the official statement, but they all knew why we were there, and so long yeah. as they could say it, then they would say, "Oh yeah, we don't allow missionaries in," but they wanted us in there. Yeah. Um, so the problem is when we start believing that stuff to start with. Um, we heard that statement by the Indonesian president, thinking it was directed at me or directed at mm. us when he was actually making that statement to his own people. Um, mm. That statement had everything to do about them and nothing to do about us. Um, so um, I, I remember this uh, wonderful African friend telling me one time, he said, um, he, he said, you know what? We're not stupid. Um, when two, uh, and you know, just the way you, you folks will understand how you can say that. He said, you know, when two white American girls move to a remote village, okay, it's not hard to figure it out. Yeah. You know? He yeah. said they're either missionaries or they're CIA. 
And you know, it doesn't take us very long <laughs> to figure out that they're missing. Yeah. Um, okay, it's just sometimes we start believing our own press releases. You know, they don't really know why I'm here. Well, that's yeah. so colonial and patronizing. I mean, they're not stupid. So yeah. I do think that we need to recognize that often statements are made uh, related to honor. Um, yeah. So they can say, you know, we don't need your help. That's what they're really saying is we, we have some self-respect. We have some honor. But actually, mm-hmm. they do need our help. Yeah. Okay. And um, and so what we should say is, oh, you absolutely don't. So where would you like this box of aid placed? You know, <laughs> and they would say, oh, over there, you know, yeah. um, and not see the contradiction. Again, we're seeing it more as rules than as relationships. Wow. And does that do you see in Scripture? Are there places where you think there's indirect communication in Scripture that maybe we miss or misapply altogether? Is that I mean, there's a lot of things that went without without uh, saying being said you know yeah. the the example you know i tell my students in the story of joseph and his coat of many coats you know i say well joseph was the uh, oldest son mm-hmm. and the ones who actually know their bible say no he's not i'll say yes he is they'll say no he's not i'll say yes he is he's the oldest son of the second wife mm-hmm. and what well, without being said you know in our culture we're all one blended family you sure. know we're all but in their culture, it's an issue of which wife carries the inheritance. Wow. And when he gives Joseph the fancy coat, it's not a case of Joseph got the nicer Christmas present. He's hmm. indicating through which line will inheritance go. Hmm. And it's clear in the story. Joseph is in the home office while the brothers are out in the field working. <laughs> and then this brother who's younger than the others are sent out to give orders from hmm. the father. Um, now, the way the other brothers who have families, you know, th- we also think these are all, you know, 14-year-old boys. These are grown men with families. Um, the way they're protected is their brother from the other wife, the one who's inheriting, he will take care of them. Hmm. But in the story, it's very clear Joseph is not going to take care of them. You know, hmm. he says, well, I had this dream, which doesn't, by the way, ever say God sent that dream. I have this dream and all the other she's are going to bow down to me. Well, that's pretty clear where things are going to go. Now, what's fascinating in the story is in the end, Joseph does take care of them. Hmm. Like he should have done at the beginning. Hmm. Wow. It's amazing. It's amazing. And uh, I put you on the spot, but you, you, uh, you came up with a, a great example for us. And uh, Ooh, don't do it again. <laughs> I won't. I'll try not to. I'll try not to. So, you know, is a large portion of this um, audience of this podcast are, are missionaries and trying to replace our cultural worldview with a biblical worldview sounds like a great idea. And probably all of us would sign up for that. Um, but also, it can be overwhelming. I mean, there's so much going on. And, and yeah, could you give us, is there, ways or steps you think we could move towards replacing some of our cultural worldview with a more biblical worldview? Yeah, let me back up and take the heat off of people a little bit. Um, okay. Everyone in the entire world gets their cultural worldview in their early years, probably by age seven or so. We all have our cultural worldview. When we've picked up our language, which by the way, you know, good missionary advice we've gotten since no one spoke English where we were. 
we were told, speak English to your kids. If you want hmm. them to have a worldview that will help them adjust to the U.S. when sure. it's their turn. Anyway, but so by age seven or so, a person's worldview is established. So every Christian has a cultural worldview before they become a Christian. So mm. we start with a cultural worldview that's not Christian. And mm. then we have to replace it with a biblical worldview. The old-timey word for that is discipleship. Okay. So we've been doing it all along. Hmm. Um, and I'll, if they, if your listeners start thinking about what kinds of things do we do when we're doing discipleship, we're actually replacing an old cultural worldview with a biblical worldview. What this book does is it points out there are some other areas that also need that same scrutiny. Hmm. Um, my cultural worldview about money <laughs> gets replaced with a biblical worldview. We already knew to do that. We called it discipleship, stewardship, all this sort of stuff. Sure. But there are some other aspects I point out in the book. Here are some other places where we still have a cultural worldview that we're probably a little bit blind to. And it's influencing how we uh, misread scripture. Yeah. And are those are those harder to change or that you think it's just because we've neglected them or maybe they're in a blind spot that we haven't walked into discipleship to consider those? Um, I think, Aaron, the thing about presuppositions and uh, subconscious suppositions have their power as long as they're under the table. Once Hmm. we pull them out and set them on the table, they lose almost all of their power. Okay. So as soon as we go, oh, yeah, then other things come to bear and we, we find that we can uh, work on those things. Yeah. So generally speaking, I have not found them more difficult. They catch us off guard because we think, oh, wow, I didn't see that. Um, the, <laughs> the great story I, I like to share is and here I am teaching in Indonesia, and I'm handing out an exam I scored, and I hand one to the – I can't remember if it was a girl or a guy now, but I hand it to this student. And as I'm handing it, I know it is multiple choice. I notice um, they had missed one of the questions on the front page question three or something like that. And I said, um, and they missed it because they didn't answer it. They left it blank. Hmm. I said, um, you, you, you didn't answer question three. And I think it was a she, but anyway, uh, she said, well, I didn't know the answer. And I said, well, you should have guessed. And, uh, and she looked at me appalled and several people Hmm. around her looked at me appalled. And she said, well, what if I guessed right? It would, it would imply that I knew the answer when I didn't. And that would wow. be lying. That would wow. be lying. And fortunately, the spirit caught me in time because I almost opened my mouth and argued her to a lower standard. Um, mm-hmm. I had an American value called pragmatism because guessing answers on a multiple choice, actually, you have better, better odds on that. Yeah. Um, so I had an American value pragmatism that was overriding a Christian value called honesty. So that place where my cultural value um, yeah. needed to be replaced by a biblical value. Now, when I tell my students this now, they hate that story um, <laughs> because they all think, oh, darn, I probably shouldn't. And so now oh, I'll have students man. who will leave a question blank on the multiple choice test and they'll put a little smiley face by it. Um, now, they're kind of hoping I might give them partial credit, which I won't. Um, but, um, it wasn't harder for them to bring that 
cultural value. Once it was on the table, yeah. then they realized, oh, wow, that is that is an issue of honesty. Yeah. Um, wow. So there you go. You know, I've been a consumer of education, um, spent a large part of my years after high school and and, and I had never even considered that um, until I read it in your book. The, the idea of guessing and her lens of honesty it was a, t- a complete blind spot for me. It really, it was. I, I just never even considered that what it would imply by answering it if I didn't know. Anyway, but it was challenging. Aaron, how about me. this? I, I don't want a surgeon who guessed his way through multiple choice exams in med school. <laughs> very true. Very, very true. And I and I was I learned uh, in school that a lot of times the people that were really great test takers, not so really good at caring for people. And um, and that would probably go to your point. They really didn't know they were just good at taking that test and uh, testing people are, are not the same thing. So one last question for you. Is there a question that you think, Aaron, that would have been a really good question to ask that I didn't ask or something that. A really yes. key chapter in your book that you think, or a point that you think yes. would be great to talk about. And actually, in all fairness to you, yeah, it's a topic I I mentioned in the book, and I realized in the ten years after that I really didn't cover it well enough. Okay, and that was the issue of patronage. Hmm. Um, it is. Um, Paul uses two illustrations that everyone understood. They went without being said. Everyone understood them to explain the kingdom of God, which they didn't understand. So when they heard it, they would say, oh, one of them is adoption. And they thought, Mm. oh, okay, well, that makes sense. The other is patronage. Mm. Um, And he refers to it constantly. You know, the the patron's not required to help you. So Aaron is a baker because his dad was a baker and his granddad was a baker and a baker, baker, baker. Anyway, and one day you did something to hack the, the baker got off. And she burnt your bakery down. That and you didn't put the fire away quite right. But anyway, so your bakery has now burned to the ground. Um, How are you going to rebuild? Well, you know, you could get a loan from a bank in Jesus' day. They charged about 11.5%. The problem is the only collateral you had has burnt to the ground. So a neighbor says, you know, I have a friend. And by the way, friend in the Bible means about, it means lots of things except a buddy. It's always terms related to patron. Um, the patron would refer to their client as a friend, and the client would refer to their patron as a friend. Um, and a broker, somebody who's mediating between it, would refer to both as a friend. So when they say, I have a friend, okay, mm. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. and that's probably, uh, it's a huge part of African culture is patronage. But anyway, and uh, I attended this conference, mostly Middle Easterners, some Westerners there, on patronage. And the only people who spoke negatively of patronage were the Westerners. Interesting. Interesting. It's actually, it's a strong biblical image and a very positive image. God is our patron. But anyway, um, so um, we become patrons. I help you. I don't have to, but I help you. So I give you the money to rebuild your uh, bakery. That, they had a term for that gift that you don't, that I gave you that you don't uh, deserve. But from that point on, we're in a relationship. And you're supposed to be loyal to me. And they had a term for that as well. Whenever those two terms are used together, it's always patronage. That term, the gift, was chorus, and your response was pistis, which we translate grace and faith. 
Hmm. Um, so when they heard Paul say, for by grace, you have been saved through faith, they thought, oh, patronage. So we're saved by patronage. We have hmm. traded in whoever was our patron before for a new patron, God. Wow. Um, and it's a huge. So when we get our head around patronage, we really understand more of the biblical picture. So every morning from now on, Aaron, you're supposed to be every morning, you're supposed to be at your patron's house in line. Mm-hmm. When it's your turn, you ask, does your patron need anything of you? And then he'll give you whatever you need that day. So every day, Aaron, we should be in line at our patron's door mm-hmm. asking if our master needs anything from us. Wow. Wow. So you said in that conference, the Westerners were the ones that seemed to have a, a, an issue with it. Is that, yeah. Does that come from our individualistic cultural view, or is it the rules-based that we don't – we're more rules-based, or what has been – You know, I don't know entirely, but the three big elephants in the room, and I would say in every room in Africa, every room, the three big elephants are patronage, kinship, and brokerage or mediation. And they always go without being said, and they're hmm. always there. Um, what's fascinating to me is in our culture, we view all three of those things negatively. Patronage is already a negative term. Kinship we call nepotism. Hmm. And brokerage, you know, we all want to get rid of the middleman. Yeah. Um, and yet those are probably the three major elements in their culture. And in our culture, it might be, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. I'd have to probably ask an Easterner what would be the three elephants in our room. And so the way you enforce the values of those aren't the value. Those are the elephants. But the way a culture enforces its values um, in collectivist cultures like Africa, three of the main tools would be, Uh, honor, shame, which is not the opposite of honor, and uh, boundaries. Um, In our culture, the way we enforce values, I haven't done a big study of it, but it would be, partly it would be guilt. My my grandma was a pro. uh, (laughs) And and I would say um, stories. We use stories like Cinderella and Little Red Hen, Aesop's fables to enforce and reinforce our cultural values. Um, so they use honor, shame, and boundaries. So I ended up after I wrote this book that you guys have enjoyed. I realized, man, I there's so much more I didn't do. So that's what I do in the in the next book. Yeah. So one of the ways I've been critiqued in the Western Eyes book is by saying, well, you've shown us probably things that we ought not to do. So what ought we to do? So that next book tries to talk a little bit more about what we ought to do. Um, if Westernized is more about me, learning about me and my culture, the other book is more about learning about collectivists, them and their culture. So Awesome. Randy, it's been an honor to have you with us today. And if you would consider, maybe we can sit down in, in a, a few months and discuss the end of the next book and uh, learn from that, learn from you also. I'd be honored to do so. Awesome. Um, yeah. Would you pray for us today? The God will, will use the, the wisdom um, and insight you've shared with us. Let me uh, say that when you asked me to speak, you used a line in your invitation that I couldn't turn down. And yeah. that was... 
um, uh, your podcast is designed to help missionaries on the field. Yes. And that is a huge soft spot for me. Having been one for nearly 10 years, I am drowning. I was just absolutely drowning. Um, uh, I, I want to do everything I can to help uh, missionaries on the field. God bless you guys. So let me pray. Father, I ask a, a blessing on the listeners to this podcast. Father, in many ways, they are surfing a tsunami. So, so long as they stay on their board, they're okay. But whew, um, there's just so much going on around them. It can be uh, overwhelming. It reminds me of when I teach exegesis classes. People say, gosh, how, how do we understand anything in Scripture? And yet your spirit permeates us and blesses what we do. And so, Father, I arrived in Indonesia knowing so very little, and yet your spirit continued to bless my steps and my missteps. So, Father, I pray that um, they may abound more and more in love. As Paul told the Philippians, may they abound in love through uh, wisdom, knowledge, depth of insight. So may they gain uh, knowledge and depth of insight, but not so that they'll be more knowledgeable, but so that they'll love better. So help them to love the folks around them. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.